welcome to Radio Cachimbona. I'm Yvette, and this is episode two. Radio Cachimbona is a podcast hosted by one Salvatorian, that's a Salvadorian Taurus, growing, healing, and storytelling in Southern Arizona. I'm here to storytell the fierce, ongoing resistance occurring in these borderlands and centering Central American voices. Enjoy. Welcome to Radio Cachimbona. I'm really excited today to be here with my really good friend, Alex. She is a PhD student at the U of A. She's a first-generation woman of color grad student slash Latina grad student, and she's here to talk about the really dope research that she's doing currently. Welcome, Alex. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Of course. First, do you want to just give like a quick one or two sentence summary of what you research? Mm-hmm. I research adolescent development, particularly for adolescents who have incarcerated parents and family members. Mm -hmm. And I want to understand how adolescents navigate that developmental time period Mm -hmm. with the experiences of having their loved ones uh, in prison. Mm. Okay, that's dope. What motivated you to get a PhD in the first place? That's a good question. Um, I will say I was part of the Ronald E. McNair Scholars Program. Oh, nice. Okay, okay. And so they really motivated us to go uh, pursue advanced degrees Mm -hmm. after bachelor's degree. Wait, we should shout out McNair because I think listeners would be interested in it. Yes. So Ronald E. McNair Scholars Program um, helps low-income first-generation undergraduate uh, students. And it was a beautiful space. Mm -hmm. I grew up with my father incarcerated so like my inner child was just happy to be there as Mm -hmm. a camp counselor um but I did start to notice ways that girls of color were being policed for like their clothing Mm -hmm. right so they couldn't wear crop tops or their shorts had to be a certain length Mm -hmm. and they were constantly reminded of that Mm -hmm. we as adults as counselors were reminded of that and I started to notice how some of the girls were articulating like, well, why can't I show my belly button? Why is my belly button being sexualized? That's what one of them told me. Wow. And I tripped out because it's like, I agree with you. I don't know why your belly button is being sexualized Mm -hmm. or I don't know why you're being told to cover up your thighs. And what I started to look at once I came home from camp is that something that I've known all my life, but this idea that girls of color are hypersexualized. Mm-hmm. So they we are sexual beings and we need to cover up so that we don't distract them or uh, like entice the boys with our with our body parts or mm-hmm. whatever. Which it's like that could be a conversation with the boys that don't sexualize girls, but again it was mm-hmm. the responsibility was being placed on these girls. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize that okay, I'm seeing girls be policed for their clothing in this setting. I know they're policed in schools Mm -hmm. for their clothing Mm -hmm. because schools enforce dress codes. Mm -hmm. But what I was tripping out on was that also when you go visit your mother, your father, your grandparent in prison, you're Mm -hmm. also policed for your clothing. If you're not wearing the correct clothing during visitation, you will not be allowed to visit Mm -hmm. or you will have to go change and it's, it's really degrading and dehumanizing. Going to visit my father in prison, it was this really 
messed up milestone that I went to where went through where I had my had my prison bra like I knew what yeah. to wear but apparently my bra had a little piece of wire on the side of it mm-hmm. and the correctional officer said that I need to go take out the wire so there I was 13 14 mm. in a bathroom with grown women who were also taking out the wires at wow. their bra and it was really dehumanizing because I feel like the system made me feel like I, sh- I should know better because I knew to pack multiple pairs of pants shirts um shoes just in case but what i forgot was to pack a different bra so either i was either i would have had to go visit without a bra like throwing my bra away Mm -hmm. or i wouldn't have been able to go visit my dad at all yeah so i just thought how unfortunate it is that especially girls of color who are experiencing familial incarceration they have to navigate so many spaces where they're policed or they're hypersexualized. Mm-hmm. And what bothers me about that the rules that correctional officers or really the heads of these detention centers enforce is that it there's a presumption that you are a dangerous person, right? Like you can't bring in any metal because that could be used as a weapon. I mean, that's like supposedly the justification for why right. you aren't allowed <clears throat> to have any kind of underwire in your bra. And I don't at all have the experience that you have of visiting your father, but I do have experiences of entering detention centers and having and being sexualized, being told that my dress was too short. And so I need I like went back to my car and found like a, there was a dirty pair of pants in my trunk. And I was like, you know, I was like, you know what? I don't care because I need to see my client today. Right. And I can't, but like, I can't imagine that being like, I don't care. I need to see my dad today. Yes. You know, that's a whole other level of emotional difficulty. But I, I wanted to, it's so important to make that connection of like these girls in this camp being sexualized and then the sexualization that they're going to experience when they're going to go visit a parent. Right. It sucks because it's like you're already assumed yes to be engaging in a criminal act mm-hmm. so you're also criminalized yes I think, in yes. that way because in a school setting or a camp setting adults or people in their authority might look at you and be like you know look at this little girl trying to test the limits mm-hmm. trying to break the rules mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. definitely so you in your paper you used an intersectional framework and i, I keep forgetting if we've talked about this before on episodes but I wanted to ask why you chose that framework why you think it's important yeah so intersectionality has been really fun for me to learn and read about and acquire knowledge about and I wrote about it after reading Kimberly Crenshaw's work who coined the term Mm -hmm. intersectionality and she helped me understand that one intersectionality centers black women Mm -hmm. so the idea that when black women are harmed it's a result of their multiple identities that are intersecting at one crossroad Mm -hmm. so if they're harmed it's not just because of their race it's not just because of their gender Um, it's a combination of like their socioeconomic status their sexual orientation um, all of these identities could be coming to where or a point so that's what I chose to use in my work because thought about myself first where I was like well 
if I'm if I'm harmed, it could be because my skin is brown. It could mm-hmm. be because of my gender, where I grew up, and I really think it could also be because of my parental status, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. meaning because of my father's contact with the criminal justice system or the punishment system mm-hmm. um, that my identity being a daughter of an incarcerated man mm-hmm. also played into why I was harmed. I think that's so important because we sometimes might fall into a trap of thinking about incarceration as only affecting the person who is incarcerated. And I'm reminded of Obama's felons, not families slogan. This idea that people who commit crimes do not have families is, is something that has long been in the discourse. And I, it's unfortunate that we don't realize that the incarceration of one person can have like neighborhood wide effects can, you know, has family level effects has community level effects, you know, because it's not just the parent that's being policed. It's also children and, and they're being constantly interacted with, with the presumption of potential for criminality. Yes. And growing up, I was always introduced as, oh, this is Nino's daughter. Mm. Not Alex, not whatever my nickname, just mm-hmm. this is Nino's daughter. Mm-hmm. And I realized that being an adolescent, for example, mm-hmm. if I messed up, maybe I got a bad grade. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was uh, at a location that I wasn't supposed to be. Mm-hmm. That had, if I got in trouble, that had implications, not just because I was like a rebellious adolescent. Mm-hmm. I was also Nino's daughter. So I just had to be really cognizant of, like, fucking up Mm -hmm. because it could be like, oh, well, she messed up because her dad's in prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And she messed up because she's, like, a dumb teenage girl, Mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate. But you're right. Like, those identities, especially when we grow up with incarcerated family members, do stick with us. When do you think you were first aware of that part of your identity, of being Nino's daughter, but... And then having that be really loaded with a relationship to prison and the prison industrial complex. Like, when was that first moment for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I knew I was uncomfortable being introduced to family members I didn't know as Nino's daughter because there would be this look, I swear to God, like that adult would look down at me and give me that look like, oh my God, either the, the look I felt like encompassed, wow, you exist mm. or oh, you're still standing, Mm -hmm. given the circumstances of your dad being sentenced to 15 to life. Mm -hmm. And I was uncomfortable because I felt like people were sizing me up or seeing me for my deficits. Mm -hmm. And also, I didn't have my own identity. Like, I was also Alex. I was also Alexandria. Mm -hmm. I had an identity separate from my father. So that uncomfortableness being introduced as Nino's daughter was very young. And then... um, in high school, I I can't say like, oh, I understood critical race theory or intersectionality. No. So But you had the lived experience. I internalized like, oh well my dad's a bad person. He committed a crime. Like why can't he get his shit together? Like, you know? And then I had to maybe in the last couple years, honestly, have mm-hmm. a conversation of whether I'm gonna view my dad's incarceration as this individual act Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or whether I'm going to view his incarceration as this systematic 
larger issue of mass incarceration and locking up very large numbers of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I switched my thinking where I'm like, oh, this is part of a larger system. Like mm-hmm. people like my father who are young and poor, they get sent to prison, you know, and, and that could be for kids who have, you know, mothers who are young and of color as well. But mm-hmm. I just started to realize like, oh, this wasn't just an individual experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's system-wide. It's When did you know that you wanted to take this lived experience and kind of use it to fuel research for a PhD program? That's a good question. So I know I was scared of the system for a while. I had anxiety about visiting prisons, about police officers. I was terrified of prison. But I know in college, intro to sociology class, the professor brought in a panel of recently formerly incarcerated men. And it was a lecture hall of 200 people and we had to ask questions. And I just remember like getting up and saying, thank you for sharing your experience. I believe I said my father is also incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And I asked a question about like, how have your kids navigated it? Mm -hmm. So scared, my palms are sweating, but also the world didn't end after I asked that question and I shared my story. Mm -hmm. And then it became, sort of a challenge to see in what other places can I begin to ask questions Mm -hmm. and also college I realized that oh college is a place that I can like ask questions not only about my own lived experience but about other children as well Mm -hmm. and then when I went or I got accepted into Ronald McNair Scholars Mm -hmm. I was matched up with my mentor Dr. Barbara Bloom also um, studied uh, children with incarcerated mothers Mm. and we developed a research project as when I was an undergrad and Mm -hmm. I just have stuck with it since then so it's been like seven years of just asking questions and learning about um sort of children who have incarcerated parents at large and then learning about myself too yeah have you heard the term me search (laughs) (laughs) do you like that concept do you like that term I do but of course it's like fuck, why can't I study frogs or something? Like, the reproductive life cycles of frogs. No, I could, but, I, you know, it speaks to, like, sometimes this work is really emotional yeah. and exhausting, and mm-hmm. I'm constantly asking questions about myself, mm-hmm. and I can never just, like, do a research project and be, like, a researcher. Like, mm-hmm. I bring my lived, in, lived experience in it. So, yeah, so research is me, search. <laughs> I've stuck with it this long, and I figured I'm just going to keep going with it. Yeah. yeah. I personally think it's so important to have folks who are directly impacted by what they're talking about, at least have some connection to it, um, or are for some reason in a position where they're held accountable to the community that they're talking about, because otherwise I, it just, it becomes a little exploitative oh, yeah. of like, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by this poor brown person and I'm going to write a book about it. 
and mm-hmm. and get a, and gain a whole prestigious career around it. And I think you have gained so much privilege from being in this PhD program and the, what that means for your future. Of course. And so I think if anybody's going to get that benefit, it should be the folks directly impacted, right? Yes, and thank you for bringing up that point. I have to remind myself of that power of my lived experience and my story. There are certain you know, pieces of language that are non-negotiable in my work. Uh, like what? I mean, just like when we say, like, felon or ex-con or criminal, like, these are people who uh, are directly impacted by the system. Mm -hmm. Or, what's another example? Detainees. Detainees. And also, like, in the last year, I've been switching the language of not using the criminal justice system, but it is the punishment system. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... That, that was really scary for me to make that switch, mm-hmm. but uh, I have to thank and shout out Dr. Grace Gamaz, who really does use the term punishment system in her work, mm-hmm. um, because that is, let's call it what it is. Yeah. Framing is really important. Mm-hmm. So you have been telling me about participant ethnography, and I, I think it's such a cool methodology, yeah. especially as a person who did have lived experience that's related to the work that you're writing about. So can you just explain what participant ethnography is and why you wanted to do that or planning to do it for your dissertation? Yeah, so ethnography, like a technical definition, Mm -hmm. is extensively documenting like details of uh, a group. And so I began using it like a a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And for me, the ultimate goal of ethnography is to document those nuances, those hidden details for, in my case, like girls of color, mm-hmm. black girls, Latinx girls, Asian girls, Native American, Pacific Islander, who all these girls who have experienced familial incarceration. I want to like, just write down and observe Um, how they navigate different settings and environments. And also, I want to document how those environments perceive them and treat them. Mm -hmm. Um, Within ethnography, there's also this concept of auto-ethnography. So ethnography, I would, that's where I'm just writing reflections of what am I seeing, what am I hearing in this space. And then that auto part is about me, Mm -hmm. like the researcher Mm -hmm. or the... um, observer the ethnographer or whatever which i think is so critical yes it's super critical it forces me to have a conversation about how as an adult i'm interacting with the youth Mm -hmm. if i'm imposing you know power over the girls i work with Mm -hmm. it forces me to check myself and then so as i've done that work just with youth who who have technically didn't have incarcerated parents Mm -hmm. so just youth in the community and so that's been a really good practice because again I'm checking myself I'm like making sure I'm not doing any harm Mm -hmm. Um, and then in the context of um, working with girls who've experienced familial incarceration I also have experienced a lot of the same issues that I'm observing so I've I've also been policed Mm -hmm. because of my sexuality because Mm -hmm. of the clothing that I wear Mm -hmm. I've also felt like I've 
had this surveillance imposed on me because I have an incarcerated father, so, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to be watched, Mm -hmm. or, um, I'm looked at... Scanned through the metal detectors. Yeah, scanned, literally scanned through the metal detectors, and I'm just grown up perceived as someone who's a deficit. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm at a disadvantage, or poor you, you have a, a father who's locked up. So ethnography just allows me to have that conversation with myself, mm-hmm. hold myself accountable, essentially. What I like, this isn't in like ethnography, like in, in an ethnography book that I've read, but for my dissertation, if I want to interview adolescent girls mm-hmm. who have family members who are incarcerated, and say I create a set of questions I want to interview them about, I think it's important that I also answer to those questions. Like I should also have a friend who asks me those questions to see if I get uncomfortable with them mm-hmm. or if they're offensive in any way, even mm-hmm. if they're not intended to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because Cause that would contribute to their policing and criminalization if you're like asking questions that might implicate that for them. Right. And So those are practices that I implement just to make sure that I'm not exploiting the girls. I do not, I think when you're so closely aligned to the group that you're working with, Mm -hmm. you still have a risk for exploiting. Yeah. And I don't want to do that with my work. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, yeah, does that cover everything yeah, or yeah. trying to figure out if I'm, I'm leaving anything out I think the one thing I just wanted to add is that I think with participant ethnography or with auto ethnography uh, I mean it does away with this idea that the researcher is objective mm-hmm. um, because I think that's one of the more damaging ideas about academia it's very dehumanizing to the people that are being written about it's like this idea that there's an objective researcher and then there's the subjects right. and I I like what autoethnography requires because who you are in the, when you're asking these questions to the girls is going to impact how the girls respond to you right. and for the work to be the most accurate those disclosures should be made exactly i think with all of that and essentially i'm asking a group of young women to be vulnerable with me and, yeah. and how can i also practice that vulnerability mm-hmm. with them that's something I think about. I don't want to elicit their, just their trauma, right? Yeah, like, Tell yes. me your trauma. So I think about that a lot. Mm. And I think we, we've already touched on this, but just to say it explicitly, why do you think it's important for researchers to name their positionality and their privileges in relation to the people that they're writing about? That's a good question. As researchers, we have a responsibility to be an ally to the group that we're working with or we're asking questions of. Mm -hmm. And we're also responsible for dismantling those systems that are imposed on those groups. Mm -hmm. So you can't just come into a space and ask your questions and leave. Researchers need to have this commitment, Mm -hmm. not a commitment just to come in and ask these questions, but a lifelong commitment, I think, to um, working towards liberation. Mm -hmm. I think I've experienced so much oppression because my father has been incarcerated. And I think it's safe to say that so have 
a lot of girls of color have experienced familial incarceration, and so research does a lot to deconstruct that, mm-hmm. and that's important. Mm-hmm. But what are we doing as researchers to disrupt that, and what are we doing to dismantle again those systems that be in? And in this case, for me, it's the punishment system, mm-hmm. and that's where our work needs to go. Mm-hmm. That needs to be the ultimate goal. Yeah, I think that's why you're such a critical part of academia because. You know, no tea, no shade, but academia is very insular, and there, I don't think everybody agrees with you that researchers should have a lifelong commitment to dismantling the systems that they're talking about. I think that there's people who think that these are intellectual exercises and that they can be used, you know, to create interesting discussion, new frameworks for their students, but a lot of people keep their work within the academy, within the ivory tower, and ultimately, who does that benefit? it doesn't benefit the communities directly impacted. And I really like how you approach it because I think it's responsible and it's ethical. I thank you. I really <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I, I try to think of actionable ways to practice that as well. Like if I go into a camp or an organization and interview girls, how can I be a part of uh, that organization or the those girls lives mm-hmm. um, if I go to a camp right um, maybe that's me coming back every year like mm-hmm. even after getting my PhD and really being a part of that community because I do have to do a dissertation right to get yeah. this degree <laughs> mm-hmm. and I can still do it in a way that where I hope that I'm not just the one benefiting from this mm-hmm. even though I will, right? Like, I will get this advanced degree that will allow me to um, make more money. Mm -hmm. And yet, there are still things that I can do to make sure that, you know, I'm in it for the long run, even after I finish my program. Mm -hmm. I I really like that you've talked to me about how you're not committed to teaching at a four-year research university. You have a lot of different ideas about how to use your PhD in, for example, like a policy context. And I think that's so powerful because PhD departments don't really advertise that as something that can be a possible conclusion to the program. Like it's very much like the best thing to do with your PhD is to go to like a tier one research university and get tenure. And I think that doesn't leave space for thinking creatively about what a person who has spent eight, how, how many years? It'll be six. <laughs> so, It'll be like eight. Who, a person who spends, there's this question of what, what should a person who spent six years in deep study about one particular subject do? And I think it's really powerful to be like, well, I think after this really deep study, I should impact legislation. Uh, I think that's really powerful because... Sometimes it feels like academics are on the periphery of society. Like, they just kind of talk about things in this very, like, elitist place. And I think it's really powerful that you have plans and hopes and dreams that are going to make it so that your work is not just going to live inside of the academy. Thank you. It took me a while to get to that place. I'm sure. Um, But I think I've always known that. I remember telling a friend, I was really nervous to tell her, you know, I don't think I want to be a professor Yeah. Um, at a four-year university. And I was really nervous about her response. And, you know, she just looked at me and she just said, you know, I never really saw you as a professor mm-hmm. in academia. 
you're a doer. I saw you out there. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think like, oh, maybe I have known for a long time that academia wasn't the place for me post my PhD degree. Mm -hmm. Um, But it just finally took having an honest look at myself about what I really wanted versus what others were telling me what I wanted, Mm -hmm. what they thought I wanted. Yeah. It's really dope. Is, I think those were all the questions that I wanted to ask. Was there anything that you felt like we didn't get to talk about that you really were excited to talk about? Um. I think with the ethnography, um, I really love it, mm-hmm. and it also makes me really aware about, you know, my. I really just want to center girls of color mm-hmm. who've experienced familial incarceration. That's the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I want their voices to be heard. The intention and the intention behind my work is to also have my voice be heard. Mm-hmm. And then also how even like my father's voice. Mm-hmm. And so I think about how there's plenty of times I tell my story mm-hmm. and I'm also telling his story. Mm-hmm. And ethically, I've got to be careful that this is his story to tell. Um, and so there are ways that I have to tell his story um, that doesn't reveal like everything he's gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are so closely intertwined, mm-hmm. him and I. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, like you said, your identity from very early on was shaped mm-hmm. as the daughter of Nino. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it still is. And I think that's... Um, this is so random, but do you remember when we went to go see If Beale Street Could Talk? Yeah, yeah. Okay, the ending scene, yeah. right? They're yes. in the prison visitation room. That's not random, yeah. yeah. I, know, I know, it's and on point. I cried inside because yeah. I thought the movie was going to end happy, like... He mm-hmm. was going to come home and like everything was going to be all right in the world. Right. And I remember feeling so seen because it's like, oh, right. The prison industrial complex really doesn't give out happy endings. Mm-hmm. That end scene of them being in a visitation room and his son being like, what, four or five? Mm-hmm. That was real. That mm-hmm. was realistic. Mm-hmm. That's actually what usually goes down when you're, when folks are sentenced for so long. Like, yeah. Yeah. you sort of experience that ongoing lifetime contact Mm -hmm. with the punishment system Mm -hmm. and so I just thought about that about how that scene was really powerful and sad at the same time yeah yeah but realistic too that reminds me of how we wanted to talk about the relationship between longer prison sentences and risks of recidivism because I think a lot of people who want to go you know quote-unquote tough on crime advocate for these like 20-year long sentences and I, I guess it's important to think about what the benefit to the individual is and what the benefit to society is of incarcerating a person for that long because when I took a class on incarceration policy, I read the statistics and a person who's incarcerated for 20 to 25 years is incredibly likely to recidivate. And it makes sense. 
you're not in the job market for 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. Like there's folks that come out of prison and are like, wait, I have to learn how to use a computer. What is the internet? Like, what is a cell phone? Literally. Like to be isolated from society for that long, it's, it's really incredibly difficult to reintegrate and we don't provide people with resources to reintegrate anyway. Absolutely not. That's so right. I mean, my father received a 15 to, your li- 15 to life sentence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to serve at least 15 years and then we'll talk when you can come home. Um, and he went in and he was 16. Okay. Wow. So when he came home, I was 21 mm-hmm. by the time he came home. Yeah. You were older than he was when he committed the crime. Oh, that's insane to think about. Mm -hmm. He didn't know. You're right. He didn't know what a phone was, what the internet was. Um, He used to tell me that he would close all the curtains in his apartment Mm -hmm. because it was just so scary to, like, live in freedom. Wow. Because you're so used to, like, being in a prison context and, like, Mm -hmm. having to be hyper-aware of your surroundings. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so you incarcerated this young man for 21 years and I didn't understand recidivism when he came out. I'm not, I wasn't a criminology major, believe yeah, it or not. Yeah. But I had this, I knew I was paranoid about him going back. Mm-hmm. I look at that paranoia now and that's actually called recidivism. Mm-hmm. And that's a product of the system is not set up to support folks re-entering society. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think I knew he would go back. Mm. Um, and he, he did, Mm -hmm. he recidivated two years after coming home and then was resentenced, you know, cause it was a parole violation. So he was resentenced for like three years and just came home last April. So in April it'd be a year. Mm -hmm. Right. And so now how long has his total sentence been like 22, 23, like 24 years. He's been incarcerated longer than not. Yes. And I still am so fearful of him going back to prison. I think that'll be a lifelong thing because you yeah. were saying earlier, like parole is so easy to violate. Yeah. It's like, like I, every person's parole restrictions are different, but I know that they can be like, you can't leave this geographic area. For example, there, the things that you can violate or like, for example, like if you have an ankle monitor, mm-hmm. don't fully charge it one day. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many, I think folks don't realize how regulated people who are on parole are. Right. Right. I am grappling and reconciling with my relationship with the punishment system Mm -hmm. because it is one. I think it was one of where, you know, I'm 27 now, so I would say a good 22 years. I was so scared of the system. And then in the last four years I've been so mad I've been so, not mad as even like enraged mm-hmm. like just so anytime I see like those vans that have mm-hmm. the men doing landscaping mm-hmm. on the side of the road mm-hmm. in their orange jumpsuits mm-hmm. I mean I can't tell you the rage I feel mm-hmm. and then in the last barely last year I've learned to channel that rage um, into my learning more Mm -hmm. about laws and and because I'm in Arizona learning why Arizona's the fourth highest has the fourth highest incarceration rate which is a whole nother thing yeah but I just I needed to do something with that rage and um I'm trying this legislative advocacy thing on Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and it's working so far (laughs) yeah I think that's really dope because I think there's lots rage 
I think can be a productive emotion if you channel it productively, but I think it can also consume people. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really beautiful that you've channeled it in such a productive way, in a way that helps heal you and also will help heal other people as well. That's the plan. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Of course. Is there anything else you wanted to add? If for folks who want to read about intersectionality, what's a text you would recommend? I would recommend the text that I read. So uh, Kimberly Crenshaw writes about intersectionality in the context of mass incarceration. And that was really helpful to me because there's actually one point where she's like, when we think of uh, black women who are, who are minimally involved in like the drug trade, mm-hmm. when they're arrested, their daughters, she actually used daughters in this example, are implicated in that because now the mother's at risk for losing their parental rights Mm -hmm. because she's incarcerated. And so now that daughter is intertwined in that Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So that was Crenshaw, let's see, uh, 2011 text from Kimberly Crenshaw called From Private Violence to Mass Incarceration, Thinking Intersectionally About Women, Race, and Social Control. Cool. It's really dope. Well, thanks, Alex, for coming onto the podcast. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you. This is so fun. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Bye.